Welcome to the special. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> All right. Okay. Hello, and welcome to a special episode of Shuffle. I'm sitting here with the perpetual special guest, Dominic Manthe. Yo. With his classic catchphrase, yo, that we're all familiar yo, with. Yo! <laughs> uh, in this little mini-episode, we are going to be talking about our top five albums of 2015. We're going to go from five down to one, talk a little bit about them, we'll see what happens. So let's start with Dominic's number five. What was your five, fifth, number five album of 2015? Number five. All right. So, I, and I got a little little blurb say about it. Number five, after a lot of thinking, hours and hours of mulling it over, number five is Panda Bear's Panda Bear Meets the Grim Reaper. Ah, yes. And I would say, I kind of gave a tiny little, like, tagline for each one of these five. I would say this was, like the best spiritual album of 2015 for me. The Church of Animal Collective. Exactly, a church, I would say it's a spiritual album for the 21st century spiritual but not religious, cynical yet hopeful kid that loves LSD. And I mean that in a really nice way. But that is what this album is. It's a very like spiritual album, fundamental. So a little bit of context. And a bear, I'm doing your job. Go for it. I didn't know this. Panda Bear, also known as Noah Lennox, is a member. I feel like I should have you read this. You do this better. You're doing (laughs) fine. Is a member of the psychedelic pop, experimental electronic band Animal Collective. The Collective Animal Collective. The the Collective Animal (laughs) Collective. He had a 2007 album, Person Pitch, which was a masterpiece album, and it was extremely influential. What was was it? Brothers, was that the huge song off of that? Or Bros. Bros? Yeah, okay. Bro. He has a song called Bros, which is a huge, in all his solo work, there's a huge running thread of family at big time. He's always talking about his family, is his there siblings. A, is there like a B side? Sisses? Ooh. No. Okay. Only if you take enough LSD. Oh, Play the okay. record backwards. And then you can hear <laughs> the sister version of then Bros. The sister Sisses. Yes. It actually just goes sis, sis. But when you're on acid, it sounds amazing. It's the most beautiful piece you've ever <laughs> yeah. heard. Uh, and then he had a 2011 album, Tomboy, which was purposefully different. He felt, he said in interviews that he felt Person Pitch had become so popular that he tried very hard to change. And that has been a theme that's carried through in this 2015 album as well, is that he tries very, very hard to not keep doing the same thing. And as much as he loves success, he sort of has an ambivalent relationship toward his fans, especially in America. He lives in Portugal with his wife and he doesn't really like the huge expectation by fans. And I would say this album, Panda Bear Meets the Grim Reaper, uh, does not make any incredible creative leaps or really purposeful shifts in style. But I would say, it sort of internalizes them. And it's a much more stripped back, although it's still very textured and electronic, but it's very different in kind of tone and in spirit. And it's a very kind of, at times, very sparse album. And if you read the lyrics, which normally I never read any Animal animal Collective lyrics ever, if you read these lyrics, there is actually 
a very kind of meaningful thread throughout roughly and again this is me just kind of pitching the album defending that it was one of the best throughout there is this repeating theme of creation growth and life that is constantly at odds with reproduction especially for fans to consume inertia and death almost every song there's this idea of i'm going to create something new i'm going to grow i'm going to be alive met with expectations to stay the same and then literally death and the album itself is called panda bear meets the grim reaper and that really is carried through throughout the whole album there's songs like the opening track that's kind of a gregorian chant with kind of lurking creaking haunting sounds that kind of sound like the the sacred terror of god although no mention of god uh and there's a lot of just good mr noah is a nice rhythmic stoner jam i would say it's kind of a fuck you to fans uh <laughs> if you listen to it there's some nice interludes with just kind of like death hums that just literally sound like what it would be like dying like a dirge yeah like a dirge it's just, uh and and i would say the top track and i would say this was also the most beautiful song of 2015 was tropic of cancer so not your favorite song of 2015 but the most beautiful. the most beautiful song okay. not my favorite but the most beautiful song and this is has almost no electronic effects whatsoever it's literally noah lennox singing with a harp sample and it's just a sort of nostalgia dream walk through family death literally cancer and there's no background electronic crutch for his vocals and you hear his choral performance and he sings lyrics that are extremely sad about cancer and i i dare you to listen to this and there's lines that are like quote laughed it off as if it's no big deal what a joke to joke no joke and if you listen to that you will feel it in the gut i tell you these are extremely moving lines and so i would say in general top five album spiritual beautiful album tropic of cancer listen to it most beautiful song of 2015. i could probably make a playlist of all of our top songs off of these for we should do that to. that's a very good idea that's that. a very good <clears throat> idea that was a very so i have a question yeah you said that you almost never read animal collective lyrics no was you having to do this podcast would force you to listen to it or was there something about this album that actually made you want to listen to the lyrics i would say i listened to every single or i listened i, I read, read i read every single lyric to every song only because of this podcast okay. i had actually read a couple uh song lyrics for a few of the songs and mostly because the album is less heavily textured and some songs are so sparse that it's as if he genuinely wants you to hear the lyrics and not just sound filler like they kind of are an animal collective. sure and i yeah so i would say if you really give the lyrics a, a read along with the music you can catch a, a pretty impressive almost kind of concept album that isn't a masterpiece like person pitch but it is a very kind of adult piece if you will very adult so it's good it's very good Awesome. Yeah. I'll definitely have to give that more than the one lesson I needed to. I, yeah, I didn't I listen it. to it that in-depthly. 
I I kind of heard a lot of people weren't they're kind of meh about yeah. it, so yeah. I probably didn't give it as fair of a chance as I should have. People were it got genuinely generally good reviews, but quite a few like hardcore fans were yeah meh, which I increasingly think was kind of purposeful. He did not want to create an album that sounded like the album everyone wanted to hear. Sure. And I think that you can almost hear that in the lyrics themselves. But if you kind of put yourself, if you listen to it more as like a sort of like spiritual ambient album, it's it's very good. Well, and I think that really goes back to people have so much expectation for Animal Collective projects and the members of Animal Collective's solo work. Yeah. And I feel like they need to remember that it's them doing the unexpected that make you like them so much in the first exactly. place. Yeah, so exactly. So they're going to, of course, give you what you don't want because otherwise they wouldn't be doing what they're known for. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, exactly right. All right. Uh, we can move on to my number five, which is New Bermuda by Deaf Heaven. I think I talked briefly about this album a couple episodes ago. Uh, Deaf Heaven are a, I'm saying with air quotes, <laughs> black gays band from San Francisco, California. African American homosexuals. Black. Black gays? <laughs> oh, black gays. Yeah. <laughs> Don't worry, we'll edit that joke out. You son of a bitch. <laughs> All right. Black gaze is a, is a <laughs> new all I hear, man. emerging genre, which is a combination of black metal and shoegaze. Uh-huh. And it's black gaze. Yeah. Uh, it oftentimes also has post-rock elements involved with it. I don't know. I guess you could call it like post-black gaze. Nice. Yeah. So it's people who are beyond <laughs> homosexual African Americans. That's so 20th they're, they're, century. They're, dude. they're homosexual African Americans <laughs> who have reached enlightenment <laughs> post black games. All the thetans are gone. Yes. Here is what we're talking Bring it all around. <laughs> so these guys kind of exploded on the scene two years ago with their album Sunbather. They, I mean, they had some releases out before then. But that really put them on the map because they did this very interesting album that was this mixture of post-rock, shoegaze, and black metal. And they did it in such a successful way that it just, you know, climbed pitchfork. And the whole blogosphere Mm -hmm. was freaking out about them. Two years later, they come out with this new album, New Bermuda. And everyone was kind of wondering what they were going to do with it. And again, they kind of went down the black metal, post-rock, shoegaze route. Mm. But, and they've said this in interviews, they were really inspired by, like, Slayer and just, like, traditional metal music. And you can definitely hear that. Mm. There's a whole lot less of the softer side on this album. But I will say, when they do go into that softer side, it's probably way more beautiful and well done than it was on their previous effort. Mm. Though I still think I'd say I like Sunbather more, because I really like the juxtaposition of the loud and the quiet. This one was like a whole lot more loud, but better quiet, but not as much. I will say, though, that one thing they nailed on this album was the vocal mix. On their other albums, 
and also very traditionally done with black metal music. Vocals are mixed very much so underneath the other instrumentation. Sometimes it almost sounds like a whisper, which is odd because they're doing these shrieking, screaming vocals. Uh-huh. With this album, the vocals were right on top of all the other instrumentation, and I don't think it took away from it at all. It was a lot more powerful, I felt. And I don't know. I don't have a whole lot to say about this album because it's only five tracks, and beyond the idea of black metal and shoegaze music combined, that's about it. Yeah. It can get a little bit old after a while because it's kind of just this like up and down wave pattern of loud and quiet and loud and quiet. But I will say there's one song in particular, and it's the last song on the album, and it's probably my top track called Gifts for the Earth. And on this song, <laughs> I don't even know how to describe it really. It almost has like a pop punk feel to it, especially with the drumming. It's very kind of upbeat and for as uplifting as black metal music could sound, it has kind of a happy feel to it. Huh. But he's still doing these black metal <laughs> screams, which even me describing it to myself sounds kind of off-putting and weird, but it yeah. oddly works very well. I'm going to have to check it out. Death Heaven, I've seen their name like a million times and I've never listened to them. They're, I've never listened to them. They're pretty like Pitchfork is in love with them. Yeah, They're, they're kind of, I would say, hipstery band. like Critical Darlings. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, they're, no, they're the that's... kind of band right now where like... People who only like bands because of the image it portrays <laughs> for them, where they're really into death heaven. Yeah, yeah. Because especially it's like this obscure, like, oh yeah, I listen to black metal. Now, if you go to a traditional black metal music fan, they will probably spit on your face and then bite it off because they're <laughs> black metal fans and then burn you. Because this is not like yeah, yeah. traditional black metalists don't. It has to. It has to fit into a very rigid set. Of guidelines, and if you stray anywhere beyond that, you're not black metal. Mm. This is very experimental, poor black metal. It's very out there, and it it's kind of like almost prog rocking in some ways because of how they're trying to do multiple genres yeah. at the same time. Are they are they considered one of the first or the first black gaze band? They're definite. I there's a very short list of black gaze-esque yeah. bands. Yeah. I won't, I don't, I guess I haven't done enough research to say if they were the first, but they are definitely putting it on the map. Yeah, like right. they are, they are the forerunners. They are paving the way for this subgenre that I'm sure won't ever get bigger than it is right now. Right. <laughs> but it's pretty big for all things considered. Yeah, right on. Uh, I don't have much to say other than that. I, recommend it if you're into post-rock shoegaze or black metal at least give it a try if the vocals are kind of off-putting yeah. i'd probably go back to that sunbather album since they're a lot more quiet in the mix this album is definitely for someone who appreciates a black metal shriek because they are peppered all over this nice yeah. all right so uh what was your number four number four album was Father John Misty's I Love You, Honey Bear. And the tag with this one is that it was the best singer-songwriter album. Not necessarily the best lyricist, 
but it was the best singer-songwriter album. Be specific. Yeah, gotta be specific here. And I would say, really, the to me, the style that Father John Misty is writing and singing in is kind of a weird tradition of almost like Graham Parson, Randy Newman, or Harry Nilsson, and even kind of John Lennon solo work, of where it's just one guy, and it's sort of about his image, and very attentive to the lyrics. The kind of tongue-in-cheek description I have for him is Father John Misty is the kind of prophet avatar for every beard-growing white hipster in America who has a penchant for irony and nihilism but is good-looking enough to get laid on occasion. And I mean that in a compliment, but that's pretty much exactly who he is. Uh, I will say, Father John Misty is someone that I've heard of so many times that yeah. it's almost odd that I can't say I've ever listened to anything by him. I'm not familiar with him at all other than I hear about him all the time. He's very hipster. He's very yeah. snarky. And from what yeah. I've heard from your description, <laughs> pairs with the kind of person I think yes, of when exactly. I think of someone who listens to Father John. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I gotta say, though, that beneath the kind of almost irritating hipster snarkiness, he does have a kind of odd soft spot in the album. We're underneath all of the extreme cynicism in the album. And the lyrics are very well-crafted, ironic cynicism constantly. There is a weird type of love in the end that the album is about. And in that sense, I think the album was pretty well done project as a whole. It's called I Love You Honey Bear. And the album is constantly kind of struggling in a way that, to be honest, is a very sort of white privilege struggle between understanding the superficiality of love as it often happens and how privileged and bougie you are. He literally mentions that verbatim mixed with the actual genuine feeling that you have for someone. So the tiny bit of background, just because it, it is interesting, Father John Missy was originally Josh Tillman and then he had over a decade of music under Jay Tillman. And I don't I've know. heard of Jay Tillman. Yeah, many okay. people have heard of Jay Tillman, and then they're a bit ambivalent about Father John Misty, in part because almost everyone who knows Father John Misty has no idea who Jay Tillman is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I gotta say, in an interview, as Father John Misty, he talks about Jay Tillman, and it's another instance where I sort of hate to hear a musician talk about himself, but it's so funny, I gotta say it. This is him on his transformation from Jay Tillman to Father John Misty. So this is him as Father John Misty speaking of being Jay Tillman. Yeah, or speaking as probably Joshua Tillman okay. about the Above two. Okay. Yeah, Go he, goes, he goes, he says, quote, I used to do these Jay Tillman shows and I would play my sad wizard Dungeons and Dragons music and watch people's eyes glaze over. Then in between songs, I would start being myself and shooting the shit and telling jokes all of a sudden, people were wrapped with attention, and I had this very devastating realization that I was way better at that part of the show than the music part. <laughs> Which I do appreciate, but that definitely cues you into why some people that like Jay Tillman don't like Father John. Sure. Misty. <laughs> Got it. Uh, but again, I, he really has a, a very biting, almost painful wit that 
does remind me a little bit of some of John Lennon's solo work where it's very kind of cynical and British snarkiness. And he kind of has an old-timey cruise line swooner vibe about it. A few songs I would recommend would be Pia Chateau Lobby number four. Very good song. Uh, it sounds kind of like a sweet song to dance to. And it's another song where he's kind of daring to write about love in the face of his self-reflection that it's all kind of pathetic. And he mentions some of the lyrics because I said he's such a good lyric writer, I should say. Uh, quote, I want to take you in the kitchen. Lift up your wedding dress someone was probably murdered in. So bourgeoisie to keep waiting. Dating for 20 years feels pretty civilian. Which just gives you a sense of his, his uh, wit and kind of biting sarcasm. And the song Holy Shit, which I highly recommend, almost made the top track as a great line that reflects the album in general as well. Quote, maybe love is just an economy built on resource scarcity, but what I failed to see is what that's gotta do with you and me. So again, that kind of represents he's constantly acknowledging how stupid it all is. Sure. But in the end, there's still something there. But the top track, top track, which I would say is almost a generational statement of middle white class affluenza is bored in the USA. And if anyone hasn't, what we should post is the live performance he does on David Letterman. Because it's one of the best live performances I've seen on TV. I'll post that on the page for this. It's, it's a, I, I would describe it as a nihilistic take on the Beatles' day in a life. <laughs> it literally starts, uh, how many people, well, Where's the line? How many people arise and think, oh good, the stranger's body's still here. Our arrangement hasn't changed. Now I've got all morning to obsessively accrue a small nation of meaningful objects, and they have to represent me too. Very good lyrics. Yeah. Very good lyrics. And then it breaks into this kind of rising, almost anthem, that's sort of the, a total anti-Springsteen American dream where he says, just a little bored in the USA. And on Letterman, he climbs on top of the piano and go, looks up and goes, save me, white Jesus. Uh, and it really is, I think, just a, a brilliant kind of nihilistic age kind of anthem of just being a white male in America. How did Letterman react to that? <laughs> he looked a little confused. <laughs> wow. And the, the other part that, that makes it really effective to see it on Letterman is that when he's singing the song, he starts listing uh, all these things. Uh, they gave me a useless education, a subprime loan, etc. And there's a built-in laugh track that <laughs> just laughs at him as he says it. That's perfect. And and I gotta say, it, it, it's brilliant. It is brilliant. And and he says that for his next album, he's taking inspiration specifically from that song. That, okay. that instead of talking about love, that's the song he's gonna kind of base his next album off of. So I highly recommend Bored in the USA for the lyrics and for the live video. Highly recommend. That sounds great. <laughs> it's brilliant. I want, I want yeah. to check that out. It's good. Okay, my number four album was Art Angels by Grimes. Grimes, a.k.a. Claire Bosher, is a singer-songwriter from Vancouver, Canada. She 
similar to Death Heaven, rose to prominence with her last effort, which was an album called Visions. I believe it came out in 2010 and 2011. Again, it was very... The blogosphere exploded about it. Oh, yeah. She came out of this small phenomenon bubble that burst called Witch House. Yeah, that's Also right. jokingly referred to as Rape Gaze Music. Hmm. It was a very, very lo-fi, very... It was all about like paying homage to the 90s and techno and R&B and even like cultural things like Herbie and Bart Simpson and pizza. Just like this yeah. weird nostalgic throwback and this very specific type of like 90s R&B samples and 90s techno samples. Now, I, I won't say that she was part of that, but she definitely got lumped in with that, especially with it was very popular in that genre to have your song titles just be like symbols crosses triangles satanic stuff pagan yeah. imagery so you'd have these unpronounceable song titles that were just like parenthesis forward slash triangle <laughs> and her first two albums were deep into that world visions the album that she kind of exploded with was the beginning of a more refined sound, a more more attention to melody, and just overall catchiness of the See, music. I thought that was her first album. Visions? Yeah, yeah. I thought that was her first. Yeah, That's she actually has two That's albums before that. Yeah, wow. And they're, Those are the witch house. Really. The witch house eras. And they oh. are... It's definitely an experience listening to them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I won't say they're the best, but it is something different. And Cultural artifact. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. With Visions, she started moving towards just pop music and dance music with still having kind of weird noises and samples. And she's very, um, she's known for like doing pitch shift with her vocals, very like, very high pitched, almost like, I want to say, anime Japanese girl character. Like, yeah, ah! just very yeah. singing like that. And then she disappeared for four years. Mm -hmm. She started to put out some music from this new album she was working with. One of the songs was called Go, which is originally a song written for Rihanna that she didn't want to do. And then somehow Rhymes got a hold of it. Huh. And she did, and it sounds exactly like a Rihanna song with Grimes singing on it. And yes, it her does, fans yeah. hated her for it. Wait, so I remember when that happened and she didn't write that song. No, I didn't know that. Did okay, that's write. interesting. That was, yeah, that's that, it. it was written by some Hollywood uh -huh. lyricist for Rihanna. Yeah, yeah, and it sounds like that. That's exactly. What and it she like. completely removed, other than her vocals, all of her grimesiness, all of like the weird electronic sounds. It was like a straight up club beat. Yeah, and her fans hated it. Huge backlash, and she was kind of like, "Oh shit," because I think she had pretty much a whole album written. That's what in I that read. Style. Too. Yeah. She scrapped it, went to go learn how to... Because before, with Visions and her first two albums, all of her music was just done in GarageBand. Just completely lo-fi, yeah. all done with samples of instrumentation. She didn't know how to play anything. She barely knew how to sing, which she kind of had this really rude awakening when Visions got big because she had to do all these performances. And she's <laughs> like, 
okay, she hid playing her laptop and sing along to it. <laughs> she yeah. she kind of disappeared, hunkered down, learned to play all of these instruments, and came forth with Art Angels. <laughs> which I think is an incredible album. I I feel like this album is setting a precedent for what indie pop is going to be going <laughs> forward in the future. <laughs> it is this perfect mix of mainstream catchy dancey pop music and also weird grimes underground off the wall i know i said weird but just weirdo stuff yeah, yeah. and it's juxtaposed so well and mm. it meshes can like perfectly interlocks she still teeters on that experimental weird side with it but it is always going on this album it remains grounded in just catchy beats and grooves and you can tell that there's this real instrumentation in it and like i i read in an interview with her she's like it's not the most well done most complex stuff but i am playing yeah and i don't know this album it, it goes a lot of places like one of the earlier tracks is this song called scream which features, uh, I believe, a, a female rapper from Taiwan or Indonesia. And she's rapping all the verses in a language I don't understand. And then the refrain is just Grimes screaming. <laughs> That's it. Nice. So there's yeah, still yeah. weird stuff. Yeah. But then if you go to the main single off this track, which uh, Blood Without Flesh or Flesh mm. Without Blood, Extremely straightforward, catchy, dancey, but I love both of those yeah. tracks. Yeah. I would say my top track off this album is a song called Kill the Mame. <laughs> and again, it's extremely dancey and catchy, but she does some screaming in it too, which I really like. It's just gritty and dirty, and it's great. Like I said, I think we're gonna look back in 10 years this kind of new sound that's emerging and we're gonna say this is where it started yeah I think she did yeah. something really big with this album yeah I'll have to I have so many friends who have said this is like the album I have to listen to and I have not given it a serious listen yet but I loved visions I did yeah, I visions really like great yes yeah, so I'll definitely have to and I know you were kind of turned off from this album because the first song you heard was California <laughs> yeah that was the one the first which, song I heard yeah. for some reason <laughs> is like her number one song on spotify right now. it is it is uh, i'm wondering if it's actually because people like it or if it's because other than the intro track it's the first track on the album yeah that's and i, I feel like why. first tracks on albums get played and then it yep. stops but it is kind of obnoxious that <laughs> like i it sounds kind of like britney spears it's a little obnoxious yeah it's a little <laughs> But I totally believe the album in yeah, general but is, is if fantastic. If you can get past that, yeah. and I'm not trying to knock anybody who likes that song, because it's an alright song, but yeah. there's a whole album of great music ahead of you. Yeah, yeah, I believe it. Alright, let's move on to our third album, and I say our because we both have the same number three. Right in the middle. Which is To Pimp Butterfly yep. by Kendrick Lamar. Kendrick in the middle. <laughs> new sitcom <Yeah>. maybe <laughs> so what uh i guess i think you did a little more intro background stuff so if 
you want to talk a bit about Kendrick or what actually I mostly just took super random notes because this album is fucking humongous so I actually have almost no context okay the only context I have is I saw Kendrick Lamar live in 2013 at South by Southwest and I had no idea who he was and that would have been, that would have been right after Good Kid, Mad City yep. came out, right? Yep. And I had no idea who he was, and I could not understand a single word, just because of the it's a the live show, the acoustics, show. and uh, everyone was so into it that I enjoyed it only because of that. I, I <laughs> it was like the weirdest introduction to Kendrick Lamar, but he was a great performer. He had a lot of charisma. I haven't seen him, but I agree he's got a lot of charisma. A lot of charisma. Uh, Kendrick is a hip-hop artist from Compton, California. Same as Dr. Dre. And the next note I have is where do I even start dot dot dot. Because this guy... If I'm saying that Grimes is is like paving the way for the future of dance, indie, weird stuff, Kendrick is probably already solidified this path he's taking yeah he is where it's at he is on fire yeah i hate to like jinx him but it's like he can do no wrong yeah every release he has just gets better than the last one yeah this album it's almost like they say to be a really good jazz musician you have to like understand all the genres that inform it and then you can like play around with it yeah. and this album sounds like he understands like almost every type of music that could theoretically influence rap and he completely like acknowledges and pays homage to it in experiments which is insane for someone this young he's only like 20 like seven yeah uh, yeah it's amazing it's incredible it's amazing. i i feel like this album no matter what your opinion on it is is probably one of the most important albums of our generation yeah simply do to the grandiosity of it, the lyrical content of it, mm-hmm. the message of it, and the delivery of that message. Yeah. So much of it completely went over my head. Like, <laughs> yes. Yeah, I'm sorry, White Guild. But yeah. Like, I, I, I didn't even know what Zulu was. <laughs> I had to look that up because yeah, it is referenced yeah. so much. And it, yep. it is a culture in Africa, which I've learned. Because it plays a very important part on this album. Yeah. Like, yeah, I called this the most American album of 2015. Yeah. It like is one of those albums that condenses a time and place and social context into it. Like it, it really is, yeah, generational. It's exactly. amazing. Yeah. And like I, I wrote down, I might not dig every track on this album, but I recognize how incredibly well produced it is. Yeah. how well thought out it is and the whole album is just so diverse in its sound and delivery that it's just it's a feat yeah whether or not i Absolutely. enjoy every single song on it or not it is an amazing album and yeah. i can recognize that in the kind of in the kind of thematic threads he weaves through every song an album this long most of the time it would come across as like he just loved his songs too much and put all of them on there and there's no cohesion to it. But there really is a thread tying it all together. And again, by the end, you get that kind of letter to the two Yeah, well, yeah, that, that letter poem that yeah. gets, it grows as you listen yeah. to the album. Yeah. And it ends with an interview, a fabricated interview with Tupac. Yeah, it sounds like authentic it sounds like he's actually sitting down with <laughs> really it's does. incredible yeah and yeah, then yeah. 
that last poem that he read that kind of defines where the name of the album The Pimp a Butterfly came yeah. from. I think I've listened to it 20 times and I get shivers every time yeah. he reads that because it's like, fuck, that's so on point. Yeah. Whatever the kids say, on fleek, on <laughs> yeah. fleck. It's on fleek. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Oh, yeah. No, it's... The album in general is, yeah, just brilliant. Especially, I... I don't listen to enough rap and hip hop to know how innovative this is, but the way that he's willing to to morph his voice, and that I've never heard anyone do it so much to such consistent effect, lining up with what he's trying to do in the song. He'll make it sound completely. You, I literally had to double check online if it was him at some points. I 100% agree, yeah. and I will say. Also, like, I'm somewhat versed in hip-hop, nowhere near a connoisseur of it. Yeah. But I think he is a bit of an anomaly. Yeah. Most rappers don't do Like, the one person that comes to mind that somewhat does it would be Eminem. Yeah, that's what I thought, too. But yeah. I feel like Eminem's is usually more for a joke. Yeah. Whereas with Kendrick, there's, like, significant importance on yeah. why he's, like... The one song, I can't remember the title, but where he's like crying and drinking and you can hear like a clinking of a glass in the background. He just sounds drunk. I think you. I think. Yeah, I think that's you. Yeah, which is, yeah, one of the best songs on there. Or it's Lucy. Both of those, he's really messing with his voice. Yeah, but yeah I, I remember, yeah, he's almost crying. And it, it's just, it really hits at home. Yeah. And like all of the, there's so many little things that you need to pay attention to like i think it wasn't until like my third or fourth listen to that i realized that lucy was in reference to lucifer yeah yeah same, i thought it was yeah, actually yeah. a girl i'm like oh he's yeah, talking yeah. about the devil <laughs> yeah and and like his uh freeform jazz this this dick yeah. ain't free yeah. this dick ain't free yeah it's just like fucking just like bebop jazz going on in the yeah, background yeah it's amazing yeah it's amazing and I, I throughout there really is a, an acknowledgement of the sort of weird kind of culture of violence that is both in America and is sort of in the rap community. Yes. And it's partly commodified. That's one thing I think constantly dealing with in there is how he as an artist is always being commodified and part of the culture that seems authentic also can potentially give way to violence which again sometimes it's not clear it's ambivalent sometimes it's not clear where he lies on that but in in the end what i thought was the best track i black or the berry that is my top track also yeah that, that is the top track that and that that was other than i yeah which i love that i, I is an amazing song especially yeah. like I love how positive it is. I yeah. love myself. Yeah. And then that I don't know if this song on the album was actually a live rendition, but he at least put in the sounds where yeah, it, it sounds. sounds like it. Yeah. And then at the end of the song, there's some people in the audience fighting and he kind of scolds them for it in such a beautiful way. Yeah. Yeah. But then Black or the Berry, which was the first song I heard off this album because I believe it was the I was released as like a like a 
almost like a standalone, a standalone yeah. song, which ended yeah. up being on this album. Black or the Berry was supposed to be the first single Probably. off this album, yeah. and holy shit, yeah, this song, yeah, I, I don't even know where to begin. Yeah, it's it's intense. It's probably honestly that's probably the best song of 2015. If I had to pick one, wholeheartedly that, agree. Yeah, it's. It's, yeah, I mean, it explores racism, violence, and the role of oneself and one's culture in relation to it. And he acknowledges, and maybe it's him, maybe it's everyone, but I'm the biggest hypocrite of 2015. Yeah. Which, yeah, because the song can come across as very, like, scolding on white people. Yeah. But he starts every phrase with, I'm the biggest hypocrite of 2015. Yeah. Which means, I'm part of the problem, too. And yeah. But I believe it ends with him saying like pardon my french but like i'll go and kill a nigga blacker than me yep which that idea of like how there's levels of blackness yeah and it's yeah. just it feels like a much bigger song than myself it feels like yeah me being a white male <laughs> Growing up in the middle class, I can't even begin to fully appreciate the sentiment from which the song came from. Yeah, yeah. And the fact, I just because the album came across as so socially and politically relevant, sometimes, and I think uh, Azalea, Azalea Banks, right? That's yeah. her. She critiqued him a little bit on this album because some of it she thought was a little bit of like the every african-american person should just help themselves and just realize and become better individually and that made her mad thinking that that instead of trying to find start with the society changing and there is that tension throughout whereas i which is probably the catchiest song of 2015 i listen to that song probably more than any other is all about changing yourself mm -hmm. but that song black of the berry it, that sort of just chooses to remain in that extreme uncertainty of dealing with racism where everyone is potentially a hypocrite and that is to me that that is like the pinnacle of the album where it just chooses to remain there in the uncertainty i agree and on a very shallow level the vocal performance is oh, amazing song yeah it is, is amazing. so i can just feel his anger like burning my face when yeah. I'm listening to this song. Yeah. Like, I will say I remember Maddie and I were listening to this, my girlfriend. <laughs> that was the first song we both heard and we were slightly disappointed that there was nothing else like that. Yeah. Um, I understand yeah. it probably would almost take away from how great this song is if there were other songs delivered like that. Yeah, exactly. But me kind of being a fan of partial music i could totally go for an album yeah angry rap yeah yeah no it was intense yeah extremely intense. and i mean yeah it just shows his versatility as a rapper it's amazing. any other thoughts on to pimp butterfly uh yeah i mean really i hope that this is one of the most influential rap albums of the 21st century i hope <laughs> i Wholeheartedly oh, agree. Yeah, it was amazing. Amazing. Okay, uh, let's move on to your number two. All right. Number two, which uh, maybe this will come as a shock, but this album, I would actually say, is the most politically important album of 2015. Okay. 
in which again maybe does seem like a shock I have a lot of context for this band because I don't know how familiar some people are, but the context informs just how powerful the album is. Uh, the band is Tanarawin, which I don't know if you've ever heard of. I have never heard okay. of Tanarawin. So Tanarawin has an album called Live in Paris that was recorded in December of 2014 and came out about two weeks after the Paris attacks. Just out of sheer coincidence. Okay. It was not designed that way. So. Again, Kendrick's album represents America. Tanarwin, I think, represents sort of the global. A global scale. Yeah. So the context for Tanarwin is extremely important and it's fascinating. They're, they're uh, a group of, that are Tuareg, which is an indigenous, nomadic, and pastoral group in northern Africa, especially in Mali. And for the last three to four decades, they've literally been refugees. They're a refugee band. They have, they've been kicked out of multiple countries. And this album in particular is so amazing because you hear French fans who probably don't know any of the different African or Arab languages being spoken, but they're yelling and screaming along with the music, which is, which is a really moving, but the lead singer of the album, Ibrahim Al-Habibi, had a rebel father. Who, and uh, Ibrahim saw his father's execution during the 1963 Mali uprising when he was four years old. He built his first guitar out of a tin can, stick, and a bike brake wire. And the music they started playing was Torig and Arabic pop music in the late 60s, early 70s. And he grew up in Algerian refugee camps, lived with exiles from Libya and Algeria. And in that community, rebel music as a genre emerged. Cha'abe, protest music, with Moroccan music, Algerian pop, Elvis, Led Zeppelin, Santana, Dire Straits, Jimi Hendrix, and Bob Marley were the huge influences creating Tenarawin, which means the people of the deserts. The way to kind of describe them, I would say, is they're kind of like, um, like Led Zeppelin's like a cashmere album, that song. If it was like way better than it even was, that's kind of getting at it, mixed with the kind of Neil Young style guitar when Neil Young was his, at his most kind of political. And it's mixed with kind of just chanting um, of various protest songs. But a little bit more context, if you'll bear with me, because it's just, yeah, so fundamental. In 1980, the Libyan ruler Gaddafi sent an invitation to all the young Tuareg men illegally living in Libya to receive full military training. All the band members joined, and they became no full kind of ragtag assortment of refugee soldier musicians. Um, and the music itself is about the Tuareg people. And they recorded for free at the time to anyone who would give them a blank cassette tape. And that's how they built a following originally, was just wow. constantly distributing this protest music. In 1989, they finally returned home to Mali for the first time in 26 years. And in 1990, there was a Tuareg revolt in Mali, which members of the band fought in. And then there was a peace agreement in 1991. By the late 1990s and early 2000s, their music reached France, Europe, North America, Japan, Australia. Led Zeppelin invited, has tried to play with them, Radiohead, big fan. 
So they finally kind of became popular in Western music. In 2012, there was another Tuareg rebellion in Mali, and there was a short-lived independent state, but an Islamic extremist group within the already Islamic community denounced all popular music as satanic. Tanarwin in particular was targeted. One member was abducted for several weeks, but was released. Which again, just kind of gives you a sense of the people typically most affected by extremism are usually the people in the Muslim communities. Uh, and these people have spent their entire lives just being nomadic protest music. Uh, and the music on this album is old material. It has the 10-day drum, which is you'll kind of recognize as festive kind of drumming. Fantastic electric guitar. I mean, really like the best of like the kind of Neil Young kind of later uh, Led Zeppelin style, even Santana. Fantastic electric guitar that's mixed with torrid rhythm and melodies, shepherd flutes, blues music, West African music, and you get this just desert, dusty, refugee songs about war, struggles, peace, um, and they're just beautiful and haunting. A lot of people describe it as like desert psychedelic rock, which is probably a good way to describe it. And again, it's just to hear them play in Paris, their best music live, is really a kind of powerful statement, I think, of the complex events going on. And the top track is uh, called Tende Tenarowin, and it's featuring a legendary 90-year-old Tende singer, Lala Badi, who sings a ceremonial kind of mantra song that's only sung by women. And it's... The, the male members at Tanarwin are uh, chanting and kind of screaming in the back and clapping and there's a bass going and you just get the drone of the men and bodies voice emerging and weaving in that and the French fans screaming and it's fantastic. And in that, I gotta say, it's the most humanity in a language I'll never even know and I've ever even heard it in English. It's one of the, it would be the best album if it was original content, but there's only three new songs. Sure. But I can't recommend the album enough. It's on Spotify. Everything Tanarwin's done is fantastic. Over four decades of just being refugees. I mean, real political music. So I, that's my, that's, that's my piece. <laughs> Kind of overwhelming, <laughs> holy crap. How, how did you first find out about these guys? In like 2011, I think my one of my old friends uh, sent me a link to... Actually, no, the first time I heard them was on KEXP, which is a radio station in Seattle that posts live music every like week. They have tons of great live music. And they had these guys in like, headscarves, looked ancient. You know, with these guitars just rocking out there, I was like, holy shit. And it really is like just desert, psychedelic rock. And how did you start following a Seattle radio station? Uh, it recommended to me on YouTube. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I'll just be like, <laughs> that's a good question, like, yeah. Connect all these Yeah, that's lines. a good question. Yeah. KEXP, I do highly recommend on their YouTube channel. Bring them. But yeah, Tanarwin, can't recommend them enough. It's like universal music. Definitely yeah, I, mean, I, don't, I wish I had more to say, but I'm just like blown <laughs> away right now. It doesn't. I mean, yeah, their their story is pretty intense. Yeah, and after the Paris attacks, this album coming out, 
Yeah, it's, it's amazing. Alright, I guess we can move on to my number two, which is Death Magic by Health. Health is a noise rock outfit from Los Angeles, California. They are known for their mixing of noise rock and dance music. They always kind of walk this tightrope, always on the verge of falling into complete inaccessible noise and extremely catchy dance music. Yeah. And they do it incredibly well. And they have this weird kind of ghostly ethereal vocalist who sings very monotone, very almost feminine sounding, juxtaposed with these extremely harsh noises. They actually um, invented their own effects pedal called a Zoothorn. Oh yeah, I've which they run all of their guitars and vocals through, and it just makes these insane, shrieking, distorted electrical noises. And with this new album, Death Magic, they definitely started leaning a lot more towards that dancier, accessible side of things. Mm. They, there's, they definitely still sprinkled their noise rock craziness in there, but it's very light on that. Mm. It's definitely not my favorite release of theirs because I like that battle between the noise and the dance. Yeah. And I think if you kind of look at their discography, they have three, three LPs and two remix albums. The first LP is just pretty much all noise. There, there is kind of a, you can see the beginnings of that danceiness. Their second album, Get Color, their first album was self-titled. Their second album, Get Color, I think started to find that perfect balance between the dance and the craziness. Mm. With this album, and actually they, they took, I think, almost six years to make. Because every time they'd start to write it, they would scrap it and start over because they kept learning about new music trends that they wanted to try <laughs> to put into it. Nice. And... I think they maybe went a little too overboard. First of all, similar to Deaf Heaven, the vocals were always mixed more into the music with their previous releases, and he sang in such a monotone way, and it was so layered within the music where it was almost another instrument rather than lyrics. Mm. With this new album, the lyrics are very loud in the mix they're on top they want you to understand the lyrics the lyrics are kind of nihilistic and hopeless yeah they're basically all about doing as much drugs as you can <laughs> and that love isn't doesn't exist but it doesn't mean that you can't have something special with someone like all throughout the album love is not enough if I tell you I love you, does like even if it's not real, will, will, do you want me to still tell you that I love you, even though we both know we're lying about it? Yeah. Do coke, do LSD, do shrooms. Like it's just drugs and sex. It's pretty much what this album is about. For your health. Yes, for oh your gosh. health. <laughs> My favorite track off this album is a song called "Men Today," which is probably the best song they've ever put out. 
and it's probably the noisiest, craziest, fucked up song on the album. Nice. And the saddest part about it is I don't think it's even a minute long. It's extremely <laughs> short. And wow. I keep having this debate battle in my head is, is the length, is it perfect? Is that what makes it so great? Yeah. Because every time it ends, I'm like, I could go for like three more minutes of that. Like, <laughs> I just want more of that. I wish that sound would have appeared more on this album and it briefly does but not in such intensity and density mm. as mm. it does on that track i will say if you're someone who hasn't listened to noise rock hasn't listened to health before i would recommend you start with the song stone fist instead stone fist was the big single off this album and it, it's a very good song. And mm. I will say it is that perfect mix of noise and loud dance and catchability. Right. And then maybe if you like that, move on to Men Today. Because that might be a little abrasive and off-putting <laughs> for virgin ears to this band. Yeah. And I will say what's interesting about them is for every album they put out, they put out a remix album of that album. The first album was Health. The second album was called Disco. Third album was Get Color. The fourth album was Disco 2. This album's Death Magic. I can only assume there will be a Disco 3 coming out. Yeah. And what has always been very interesting about those Disco albums, which I enjoy a lot, is that they get their friends to remix their music. So, like, you get an electronic artist taking a noise rock piece and turning it into a dancey track, which I find interesting. Yeah. It's going to be odd with this album because they're going to be handing over dancier tracks in the first place. Yeah. What I think would be really interesting is if they had like noise rock artists remix it and make it noisier. <laughs> yeah. Like they, they, especially with Disco 2, they got some pretty big names remixing like Crystal Castles, Tobacco, the main guy from Black Moth, Super Rainbow. And that, their biggest song ever is actually a remix by Crystal Castles. So Crystal Castles oh, is kind of what got them put on the map with their song Crime Waves. Yeah, yeah that yeah. song both appeared on the disco, the disco LP and Crystal Castles' first album. Huh. And everyone thinks that that Crime Wave song, that's Alice Glass, the old lead singer from Crystal Castles, singing on it, and it's not. So did I. It's yeah, actually. So jake from <laughs> health he has got a very feminine voice yeah. but that's actually him singing on that track if you look in the linear notes for that track on crystal castles ethan is the only person credited alice is not because her vocal work does not appear anywhere right. on that track wow i didn't even know that i've heard that song like a hundred times yep that's a health <laughs> that's song awesome. and then it health <laughs> In pretty much all the interviews with them, they say, like, yeah, our biggest song, everyone thinks it's by Crystal Castles. It got huge in Europe in the dance club scene, and no one knows who the fuck Health is. They all wow. think it's Crystal Castles. And I will say, Crystal Castles did a great remix of that song. Yeah, yeah. And if you listen to the actual version of that song, it is a very off-putting, noisy, abrasive, noise rock song. Mm. I love it, but you have to like off-putting music to be into that. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's all I have to say about health. Uh, let's move on to Dominic's number one album of 2015. The number one. The number one song for me. It's actually one I have 
the least to say about it. I think maybe because it was just the most viscerally, viscerally pleasurable album, but it's Tame Impala's Currents. It was by far my most listened to album. From front to back, I just thought it was just kind of timeless, glorious, psychedelic dance music that has surprising emotional depth at times, but almost in like a surreal David Lynchian way. The slower songs on this album have a sort of like like David Lynch music in his movies and TV show. They, they're kind of like heavily sentimental, right? These, yeah. these, I would say, are similar. They sound like they're almost going to get really sentimental. And then similarly, they have a weird surreal feeling. Is there like an eeriness? Yeah, to there's it? an eeriness yeah. that kind of acknowledges its own kind of weirdness. And, and I gotta say, like, Yes, I'm Changing, for instance. It sounds like a song maybe could have been based off of a David Lynch <laughs> Wait, line. Is Yes, I'm Changing like a literal reference to the fact that the sound on this album is a departure from their previous albums? The lyrics in that are more about like a relationship. Okay. But yeah, a little bit of context Yeah, is that this album was a big shift uh, for people that were huge in the Tame Impala's 2012 album Lonerism which is psychedelic rock guitar. And this one, there's almost no guitar whatsoever. And actually, I didn't even know this until I researched that although Tame Impala is a band, every performance is the same people, it's actually 100% the product of uh, Kevin Parker. I had no idea. I knew he was a singer-songwriter, okay. but he produces, writes, records, and performs absolutely everything you hear on the album. And then he just has a touring group. Kind of like Trent Reznor managed. Yep, exactly, exactly. And yeah, he said that he didn't want to do another psychedelic guitar album. And this one is kind of like a strange, like, discotheque retro register of music. But it still has that very much kind of acid-washed psychedelic feeling to it. But it's... It's an album that you could dance to if one were a dancing type. You could work out to, which is my least favorite way to describe music, <laughs> hands down. But you could also go into your room, put on headphones, turn all the lights off and listen to it in all the textures, kind of ambient, psychedelic layers. And that I can't say for many albums, that they could work on that many different registers. It's, it's just a fantastic album front to back in particular your the sequence near the end from the less i know the better to past life to disciples to cuz i'm a man is an amazing four song progression for an album that's a sort of stream of consciousness do they bleed into each other or is it just kind of like a vibe that carries a couple like of the songs do now i'm trying to think if every song might actually bleed into each other the vibe on the album is as if okay. they're all bleeding into each other. But yeah, it's just a psychedelic synth acid tripping that hits very strange registers of nostalgia in the past life to a glorious lost 1960s song in Disciples. It's like a two minute song that literally sounds like it was just a weird artifact from like 1960. Someone took too much LSD and had a kind of a disco vibe to it. And then to very odd reflections on masculinity and because I'm a man 
where he keeps saying, because I'm a man, woman. Because <laughs> oh, I'm a man, woman. And it literally yeah. sounds like he's saying, I'm a man, woman. And I just got to say, the best song on the album that is... It's so bad to compare this to Kendrick Lamar. But the song that I probably listen to the most is Let It Happen, the opening track to this song, to this album, which is just starts with a driving rhythm that is a sort of like Daft Punk retro disco sensibility with that psychedelic acid soap vibe. And I gotta say, it made me like Daft Punk music more, which I know is like heresy, but I could never really get into that kind of music and then listening to this album, I kind of got got it a little sure. bit. Um, and I know this is ultimate heresy, but whereas Daft Punk's last album was a little bit self-indulgent. Extremely self-indulgent. Okay, thank you. It was extremely self-indulgent. Extremely self-indulgent. This album is like, is like if Daft Punk were still young and they were like, I'm going to mix the shit that we do with other types of genres and other sounds buzzed out bass white creeping noises in the back crazy vocal layers that get ridiculous that's what this album and this song in particular really sounds like and in general is just extremely enjoyable music sure. so almost at just a bait tenarwin fantastic kendrick lamar father john misty panda bear those are all good on a intellectual level and musical this one is like just fully aesthetically pleasing to the point enjoyment of listening just the sheer enjoyment the less i say about it the better it's fantastic album awesome and you love the artwork i I love the artwork too i I, i love the artwork i would like that's the kind of artwork where I like. I'd like a poster. Of that. Yeah, it's that awesome. is totally my vibe and aesthetic. Like yeah, black and white, trippy patterns. Yeah. It's like a weird ass like pinball going through yeah, the middle, just, like some like. It looks, <laughs> it looks like it's liquid and there's a yeah. rippling effect. It's awesome. It's great artwork. All right, I guess we can finish this off with my top number one album. And I, I intended this to be a mini episode, but. <laughs> We Looks like it's going to be a full length there. Make right. it a four-part four release part. in 15-minute installments. Oh, all leading up <laughs> to 2016. Yeah, there you go. All right. So my number one album, 2015, is One O Tricks Point Never's ah. Garden of Delete. One O Tricks Point Never, whose real name is Daniel Lopatin. I hope I'm saying that right. Lopatin, Lopatin. He's an experimental electronic music artist from Brooklyn, New York. He uh, started a genre of music called Vaporwave, which is very come and go fleeting. And this album, and there's a whole narrative to it, so it's hard to say how serious this is, but was constructed under the genres of hyper grunge and cyber drone. Hmm. So. Like I said, this is a concept album of sorts about an alien humanoid named Ezra, who's a teenager, and he's stuck on Earth, and he's really into a fictional band called Chaos Edge, spelled K-A-O-S-S Edge. Leading up to the release of this album, many fake blog accounts, Twitter accounts, Angel Fire slash Geocities-esque websites 
for those of you who aren't familiar, they are like extremely rudimentary 90s looking websites with <laughs> horrible 3D yeah. graphics, fake SoundCloud accounts, hidden MIDI files on websites started appearing Jesus. all over the internet, leading to the construction of this story of Ezra. If you go, Ezra has a Blogspot account, and if you go back throughout the history of it, I don't know how he did this, but there are entries from like 1994. Really? I'm Jesus. sure he just like doctored mexed, it. Yeah, yeah he, he messed with the metadata of it, but That's awesome, it looks bro. like he's been here since the 90s. <laughs> Daniel was speaking about the recording of this album, and he was at the time, and actually to take a step back, both one of Tricks Point Never and Health got big because of Nine Inch Nails in a way. Hmm. Which, as some of you might be familiar with, is like my favorite band of all time. And yeah. as of the recording of this, a Nine Inch Nails song has yet to appear on an episode of Shuffle, which seems in defiance of yeah, my music library because the majority of my music library is probably not that there could be a majority of 40,000 songs but there's a significant portion of it dedicated to Nine Inch Nails I deleted it all and replaced it with ICP <laughs> oh well we haven't had an ICP song <laughs> yeah what the either. fuck yeah <laughs> so health got big because Trent took them on tour with him mm. that's how I found out about health I actually found out about One Tricks before he, he toured with Nine Inch Nails, but he kind of exploded after Nine Inch Nails went on tour with Soundgarden, and Death Grips was supposed to open for them. And at last second, Death Grips just canceled out of the tour because that's what they do. <laughs> and in like a whirlwind decision, Trent's like, hey Daniel, open for us. He's like, okay. I actually saw him originally opening for Sigur Rós. Wow, a really? Very weird opener Whoa. for Sigur Rós. Wow, I would yes. never have guessed that. Holy shit. And I, I he did a 30-minute set of whatever it is you want to call that he does, <laughs> and the audience was alienated, to say the least. <laughs> but it intrigued me enough to check him out more. Wow. And so while he was touring with Soundgarden and Nine Inch Nails, sitting in the tour bus, he was reminded of growing up in the 90s. He was a teenager in the 90s. He was listening to Nine Inch Nails and Soundgarden in the 90s. And yeah. it reminded him of the angst and the nihilism and the alienation and the traumatic experiences of being a teenager. And that's what this album is. It is an homage to the chaos and trauma you experience growing up as a teenager. Mm. Throughout this album, there are a lot of new metal sounds interweaved with his weird electronicness. Hmm. And there's a lot of lyrics on this album, none of which you can understand because they're all chopped up into gibberish and they, <laughs> they're pitch shifted like an auto-tune voice. And there's cyber screams and that's and it goes back to this hyper grunge and cyber drone fake genres of this melding of new metal and industrial music from the 90s hmm. so to represent himself he created this Ezra teenage alien character and he created this fictional hyper grunge cyber drone band chaos edge for him to be into which is supposed to like relate to him listening to Soundgarden wow and so this is kind of it's a very blown out oversaturated peaked peaking noises album that has this coherent central vibe to it of just teen angst, yeah. pretty much. 
Yeah, this guy is a mad genius. The little bit I've heard, yeah. it's like just mad genius. And like, I'll I'll it's link crazy. to Ezra's blog spot and some of the things, but like, <laughs> there's this in-depth interview that Ezra conducts with One Tricks about this album, <laughs> and it is just it's so fucked up and weird. And like, there's That's this contentiousness great. about like they hate each other, but they're interviewing each other and. Like That's Ezra's great. like, so I hear you ripped off my sound for this new album of yours, and he's like, yeah, well, I'm a lot bigger, so it works for me, and I can just take your noises. Like it, <laughs> it's it's very self-deprecating. Yeah. I mean, like you said, mad genius. Yeah. Um, my favorite track off this is one that I talked about in a previous episode of Shuffle, Sticky Drama. It is an incredible song. There is the most fucked up two-parted music video that goes along with it that I'll post about these children LARPers that are just straight up murdering each other. I don't know if you know what LARPing is, but live action role playing. Oh. So it's like live action Dungeons and Dragons of nerds like nice. hitting each other with cardboard swords. But in this music video, they're mutilating each other. And they all have these Tamagotchis from the 90s yeah. that are like encrusted in these meat orbs that they're like, they're like their companions and they're making sacrificial sacrifices to. And there's all these like weird diseased faced people. It's <laughs> it's exactly what this album sounds like, but, and he directed the video of course. But Sticky Drama, it's got beautiful harpsichord sample in it. It's got, <laughs> new metal screaming in it and it's also extremely catchy and dancing which are all things i wouldn't think go well together but they yeah so i'll have to check him out more highly He's, recommend it he seems like a total singularity like he, tom waits exactly almost. like it just completely he is to himself he's just himself <laughs> and there's nothing else that is like it or ever will be yeah. like it and he's either for you or he's not for you yeah. and if he's for you you're on board the one of tricks training if you're not you're not yeah yeah all right well that wraps up our top five of 2015 thank you for listening and looking forward to 2016 hell yeah all right better be good music industry you hear me we're talking to you <laughs> yeah <laughs> all right thanks for listening catch you guys later <laughs>